mic turned down a little bit. So I think I figured out our uh, wireless microphone problem. So the it, it's the same as anything else. When you find a value set where you buy six microphones at one time, one of them will not work. And uh, unfortunately, it was not quite that straightforward. The, if you listen to the last couple recordings, um, the it works, and then it stops, and then it works, and then it stops, and it works, and then it stops. And so that particular microphone has been kind of frustrating. But I think we're fixed. I think this one works just fine. And I can hear me, and you can hear me. So that's great. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the 31st chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 31. We have been working our way through the story of the patriarchs. You remember that um, we began with Abraham. And Abraham was living as Abram in the land of Terah. He was, had nothing going for him, but God saw his faith and God called him out of the land of his father Terah, out of uh, the land, or the Chaldees, and pulled him across to Canaan. Abraham uh, went along and had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau, of course, was the older, Jacob was the younger. Jacob was the manipulator, and that's all that we've seen in the life of Jacob, is Jacob doing whatever it takes to get what Jacob wants. Uh, you know, Jacob is the one who God blesses in spite of himself. You know, sometimes people think, well, I must be doing something right. Things are going so well, I must be doing what God wants me to do. And Jacob is the Bible's proof positive that that's not always the case. That sometimes things may be going really well in spite of you and not because of you. Now, maybe it's more encouraging to state that the other way. Just because things are not going well does not mean you are not where God wants you to be. But Jacob is the proof that situations do not show God's favor. So Jacob, from the very beginning, was a lying, thieving manipulator. You go through the story of Jacob briefly. You'll remember Jacob, when he was younger, was always his mother's favorite, and uh, Esau was always his father's favorite. And from the very beginning, they were always playing each other off of him like that. One day, Jacob was at the house, and Esau was out working in the field. And Esau came back and said, I'm starving to death. And Jacob said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll give you some food if you trade me your birthright. If we can just swap inheritances, then I'll give you something to eat right now. Esau, very impulsive, said, oh, that sounds like a great idea. I'm going to take that. And uh, Jacob takes advantage of his brother. You go a little farther, and you remember that Isaac says, I'm about to die. And so Isaac, laying there on what he thinks is deathbed, although he lives decades longer, but he doesn't realize that. He says, I'm getting ready to die. I need to pass on my inheritance. But instead of bringing both sons to divide up the inheritance, he says, Esau, you come to me. You go fix me something to eat, and we're going to have a meal, and I'm going to bless you. And you say, well, I wonder where Esau got it. Well, so Isaac intends to just bless Esau and cut Jacob out and never have Jacob know, be any the wiser. Of course, that backfires in a hurry because uh, their mother is waiting outside, eavesdropping in the tent. Here's what Isaac says and calls Jacob and says, Jacob, here's what we're going to do. Your, your dad's almost blind. You're going to put on one of your brother's shirts and go kill a calf. And I'm going to cook the calf to taste like the wild game that your brother's going to get. And before your brother gets back, we'll put the goat skin on you so when he feels your hands, it'll, they'll feel rough like your brother's. And we'll trick him 
into blessing you instead of Esau. Well, it works. <laughs> Isaac is so eager to fool that he falls right into the trap. You know, the Bible says that the wicked dig a pit and fall into it. You know, sometimes you set yourself up for your own consequences. If Isaac had called both sons to himself at the same time, he could have given them both the blessing. But because he decided to be underhanded about it, he set himself up for trickery. So it goes a little farther, and when Esau finds out, of course, Esau says, I'm going to kill you. Uh, and Isaac says, well, I've got to get out of Dodge. So Isaac leaves and goes back to the land where Abraham had come from. And there he falls in love. You know, he, he, sees, the, he sees his cousin coming toward him, and he, uh, you, you'll remember it says he pushed this cover off the wellstone, ran up to her, and kissed her. He just said, First I'm going to show off, then I'm going to go get the girl. Well, he goes to her father, and you remember, he says to her, he says to Laban, Laban, I want to marry your daughter, and I'll work for you as long as you think is fair in exchange for marrying your daughter. Laban says, well, work for her for seven years. And it says, and Jacob worked for her for seven years, and they seemed but a few days because of the love that he had for her. In awe, until you read the next verse where it says that they had the wedding. Uh, Jacob was eating and drinking and being merry. And uh, it says he woke up the next morning, and behold, it was Leah. Instead of marrying the daughter he had fallen in love with, he married her older, uh, her older uglier sister. Um, and we talked about that last week, about how the deceiver was deceived, how Jacob, who had been fooling people his entire life, suddenly got out Fox. And that's one of the problems with trying to be clever and trying to be sneaky and trying to be manipulative. You're always going to find somebody who's better at it than you are. And Laban takes advantage of him, and we talked about this at length. Uh, can you imagine being Leah? And your dad coming to you and saying, look, honey, the only way you're ever going to get married is if we get some guy drunk and trick him into thinking that you are your sister. And uh, so Leah, and of course we talked about, Leah's name means cow in Hebrew, and uh, Rachel means little lamb. So he named his two daughters cow and little lamb, and uh, he plays that across them the whole time. Now, when, he, when Jacob wakes up the next morning, finds out he's married the wrong sister, he goes back to Laban and says, hey, wait a minute, we had a deal. Laban says, no, 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 we never let the older sister get married after the younger sister. We had to marry off Leah first. But if you're willing to work for me for seven more years, you can have Rachel too. Um, and you think, well, there's no way he's going to go for that. But uh, it is just like going down to one of these rent-to-own places or whatever. He says, you can have Rachel now and then pay her off for the next seven years. And Jacob says, all right, that sounds like a deal to me. So uh, Jacob, Leah has her one-week honeymoon, and the last day of their honeymoon, he marries Rachel and then works for seven years for Rachel. Last week, we got through all that, and we saw they were having different kids and everything. Uh, terrible, terrible story. Because Leah says, look, I've had a son. Now my husband will love me. Look, I've had two sons, now my husband will love me. Look, I've had three sons, now my husband will love me. And she always thinks that it's something she does is going to make her husband fall in love with her. And, of course, we saw that was Leah's story the whole way through. Leah said, well, you know, once I sleep with him, he'll wake up the next morning and he'll realize he really loves me. And she said, well, once I've got a baby, he'll really love me. And, uh, you know, one thing that I pointed out last week again is that that would seem so unrealistic if you've never actually talked to anybody who talks like that. You know, how many people have you actually met that were under the impression 
that uh, they could make someone love them with sex or a baby. But Leah proved, well, 3,500 years ago that didn't work. It still doesn't work. And so uh, Jacob is still the lousy man that she married, and uh, her marrying him did not change that. No kids changed that. And so they come along, and uh, they, they, Jacob at this point has got 12 kids, 11 sons and a daughter. And he has worked the seven years for Rachel, and the seven years for Leah, and then six years for sheep. And this is where we found out some more about Laban's character, is he said, look, I'm going to need some ink. Uh, give me all of the sheep in your flock that are striped or spotted. Give me all the sheep and the, that are not usual, the mutant sheep. You know, ordinarily in the Middle East, uh, sheep are entirely white and goats are entirely black. So Jacob was, in, was a shepherd, and he said, give me all the sheep that have got some black on them and give me all the goats that have got some white on them. And uh, Jacob, we're going to read today, God came to Jacob in a dream and said, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. Jacob said, well, that's all well and good, but I've got another idea. He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use magic to force them to be born the way I want them to be born. And you read one of the strangest chapters in the Bible. Jacob cuts sticks up to be striped and spotted and has the goats and the sheep mate in front of the cut sticks because he thinks that's going to make them have the right kind of babies. Now, what we read about the whole time through this We've been studying Jacob. We've been uh, going through the life of Jacob for a good amount of time now. And Jacob has prayed zero times. Jacob does not refer to God as my God. He says, the God of my father and the God of my father's father. And and the narrator goes at extreme lengths to show you that Jacob at this point is not a godly man. Jacob is not a good man. But God uses him anyway because God's got a bigger plan. And so now, we, where we come up today, it's been 20 years since Jacob has come down to Laban. He's spent all this time, he's earned two wives, he's got, 11, he's got 12 kids, and he has earned his wages. Now, one other last thing to mention is set up to count, is that Laban, when he had agreed to what Jacob's wages would be, the first thing he did was he took all the striped and spotted goats and put them 70 miles away. He he gave them to his son 70 miles away so there wouldn't be any spotted genes for Jacob to work with. So we talk about the deceiver setting themselves up to be deceived. What we are going to read about today can only happen because Laban is 70 miles away. This is the distance from here to the woodlands. He's 70 miles away, and so he can't keep an eye on what's going on. Trying to deceive, he gets deceived. So, Genesis chapter 31, verse 1, we read, And he, Jacob, heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob hath taken away all that was our father's, and of that which was our father's hath he gotten all this glory. So Laban's sons, Jacob's brothers-in-law, are looking around and they're saying, Look, Jacob has taken away our inheritance. Everything that ought to be ours, Jacob is getting instead. Now they, so they don't think of it as Laban tricking and failing. They think of it as, look, Jacob's taking away everything that's rightfully ours. I understand how the brothers felt. I know that if Colleen and I hadn't gotten married, she would have had four parents, and I would have had none. <laughs> Somebody else comes in and takes it away. Jacob is here sensing and overhearing the animosity between him and uh, Laban's sons. 
And further, it says in verse 2, when Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban, and behold, it was not toward him as before. Jacob said, Laban's not treating me the same, and I can hear how upset his sons are with me. And the Lord said unto Jacob, Return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. But God came to Jacob and said, Go back home, and I'll be with you. And Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field unto his flock, and said unto them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not toward me as before, but the God of my father hath been with me. You see that? He doesn't say, my God's been with me. He doesn't say, the Lord's been with me. He says, the God of my father has taken care of me. And you know that with all my power, I have served your father. He said, I've worked hard all this time. And your father hath deceived me and changed my wages ten times. But God suffered him not to hurt me. Here's something I'm going to point out also. You, You read that and he says, I served with all my power for these last 20 years. You say, well, I thought that Jacob was a deceiver. You know, why is he working hard? It's because people aren't that simple. Isn't that right? You know, you say somebody can have some positive character traits of working hard and being diligent and still be rotten. And so Jacob Jacob doesn't emphasize his own character flaws. He emphasizes his own character traits. He doesn't say, uh, I've tried to use magic to get my way. I've tried this to get my way. He says, well, I've worked hard. And when we're assessing ourselves, we're awfully nearsighted in that way. We don't remember the mistakes we made. We remember the things that we've done that we're proud of. So he comes and he, he says but, that your father tried to fool me, but God wouldn't let him. If he said thus, verse 8, the speckled shall be thy wages, then all the cattle bear speckled. And if he said thus, the ringstrake shall be thy hire, then all bear the cattle ringstrake. Jacob says that Laban kept changing the standard, and whatever he made, Jacob's wages be, God gave them that. Thus, God hath taken away the cattle of your father and given them to me. And it came to pass at the time that the cattle conceived, that I lifted up mine eyes and saw in a dream. And behold, the rams which leaped upon the cattle were ring-straked, speckled, and grizzled. And the angel of God spake unto me in a dream, saying, Jacob. And I said, Here am I. And he said, Lift up now thine eyes and see. All the rams which leap upon the cattle are ring-straked, speckled, and grizzled. For I have seen all that Laban doeth unto thee. God comes to him in a dream and says, Look, I'm giving you all these different things. But Jacob still intends to have things his way. You remember, because we read chapter 30 last week, that he still tried to cut the sticks and tried to get his way after God had given them the stream. Jacob is always hedging his bets. He always says, well, it'll be great if God works out, but I've definitely got to have a plan B. If God does what God says he's going to do, that'll be great. And if he doesn't, well, then I'm kind of working it on this side. You know, some people do that even with their salvation. They say, okay, I'm going to trust Jesus, or at least I'm going to repeat this prayer so that if people get saved by repeating a prayer, then I'm in. But at the same time, I'm also going to work as hard as I can. So if people get in by being good, I'm going to be in. I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm going to kind of get both sides. What's the problem? Is that, That's not trusting Jesus at all. You haven't done one. Jacob, though, thinks, well, I'm going to do the magic, and if God answers, well, that's extra great. That's, of course, the same thing that Rachel did, his, Jacob's mother. She, she knew that God had promised 
that Jacob would get the inheritance, not Esau. But she said, well, I'm going to hedge my bets a little bit. I'm going to dress him up like his brother and try to fool his father. How often do we say we're trusting God when really we've got, we've got it going on both sides? As we read on even uh, in verse 13, he says, I am the God of Bethel, where thou anoints the pillar, and where thou vowed a vow unto me. Now arise, get thee out of from this land, and return unto the land of thy kindred. He says, I'm the God of Bethel. You remember the place where he had the dream, Jacob's Ladder. I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar, and the spot where you swore to me that if I took care of you, you would come back to me. So get up, go from this land, and go to the land of your family. Again, what's really fascinating is that he does not say, I am your God. I am the God of the place. So Jacob is here trying to make his pitch to his wives to leave their father, to leave their family, leave everything they know to go with him. But Rachel and Leah answered and said unto him, Is there yet any portion or an inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not counted of him strangers? For he hath sold us and hath quite devoured also our money. For all the riches which God hath taken from our father, this is ours and our children's. Now then, whatsoever God hath said unto thee, do. Rachel and Leah say, there's nothing for us here. And this is not a great noble statement. You remember when... uh, Jesus had multiplied the fishes and loaves and later had uh, told the people they just came for bread and sent them away. Jesus said to the apostles, will you leave too? And Peter said, where will we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. This is not like that. This is them saying, well, look, our father has already spent our dowry. He's broke. Everything that God has given you is what would have been our inheritance. We're going to go with you. What's the point? That's kind of interesting when you think about ancient marriage cultures. Sometimes people say, well, look, they thought that women were property. Look, the, the husband went and he bought stuff from the, he bought the daughters from the dad. And then later on he sold them or whatever. He sold his own daughter. They thought women were property. How can you trust the Bible? Well, what we see here is that that's not how it worked. Um, you paid a dowry to the father. And the father was, according to Hebrew law, legally required to hold on to that dowry so that if your husband died or your husband left you, your father could use that to support you. And then at the time of the inheritance, you would get it. So actually, the dowry was uh, sort of a security payment for the wife. So the uh, husband paid down what it would cost to support his new wife so that the husband would know that if he ever left his wife or anything, that that money would be transferred to her. It was a protection act. And so Rachel and Leah look at this, and they say, we are entitled to a lot. We had seven years of labor for our dowry, and our father has blown it. And so they say, we don't have anything with him. We don't have an inheritance. Whatever God said to you, do. We're going with you. Then Jacob rose up and set his sons and his wives upon his camels, and he carried away all his cattle and all his goods which he had gotten, the cattle of his getting which he had gotten in Paddan Aram. For to go to Isaac, his father, in the land of Canaan. Verse 19 is very important. And Laban went to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the images that were her father's. So Laban goes out to work, 
Laban probably lives in the middle. He's got his sons in the woodlands. He's got Jacob here in Richwood. And he lives in the middle somewhere. And he goes out to work. Rachel breaks into his house and steals his idols. And they had, they had little idols. They were called hearth gods because uh, you put them on the mantle. And so she breaks in and she steals these little idols. You say, well, what on earth is she doing? We talk about a family that hedges their bets. She says to Jacob, whatever God says to do, that's what we're going to do. And then goes and says, but let me get these idols to protect us just in case something goes wrong. We'll have God and these gods. You know, we're going to get a whole group of them. And that way, if one, it's, a, it's like a safety net. You know, if you fall through one, you've got the other one. She's thinking about, you know, like a parachuter. When they go out, they've got the main cord, but then they've got a backup one just in case something goes wrong. She says, yes, wherever God says to go, we'll go. And if he lets us down, I'll have these gods here. And I'll hold them up or whatever. And, uh, of course, the Hebrew person reading this thinks that it's, strange to talk about stealing a god. How can you steal something? How can you steal a god? Are gods subject to, you know, you putting them in your bag and taking them where you want to go? And so in the story, what's happening is that God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and later Jacob, moves Jacob's family. And Jacob's family moves the idols. That's the hierarchy. Is God's above the people and the people are above the idols. They made them and they're their problem. It's an awfully strange thing to place your trust in something you can steal from your dad's house and put in your saddlebag. But how often do people do that? What are some of the gods that people have in their lives they hedge their bets with? Say, I'm going to trust God to take care of me, and I'm also going to keep at least this much money in my savings account, and I'm going to do this. And How many people do you know that when they fill out their taxes, they're going through, and they see the size of the refund they get or the size of their amount they're going to owe, and then they go back and try to reconsider if they had any other deductions they should have thought of. Hedging their bets, right? You've got one eye over here and one eye over here. And so, the, the, of course, different idols. Money is, of course, an idol for people. And if you think you're going to place your trust in God and money, the Bible says no man can serve two masters. You either hate the one and despise the other. You can't have both. Another idol that people have is power. People say, I want to be in control in this situation. And if I can be in control, then I can trust God. If I can sort of have my hands on it, then I can trust God. Another one that uh, people have is popularity. I'll follow God, and I'll get lots of people to like me. And I'll be popular, and I'll follow God as long as I can still be popular. That becomes an idol. That becomes a god. Anything that takes your heart away from God is an idol. And so why is that this, how is that any different? You know, I'm going to trust God, but if that falls through, I'm going to have a lot of friends. I'm not really going to alienate anybody. Rachel says, I'm going to trust God, but I'm also going to have these little gods just in case. Got backups. You can think of what the idols are in your life. What are the areas that keep you from fully following God? You know, one of the things that grieves me, Brother Moons was talking about people that have lost the fear of God, people that don't have a proper respect for God, don't worship God. I think in our society that's uh, true across the board, that most people in our society have never experienced awe. You know, they, you get 
fleeting glimpses of it, but most people have never truly been in awe. So think, think of how lightly we use the word awesome or worship. And that, that's not new, but it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse because we have so many experiences compared to people from uh, ancient times or even you know, not, not that long ago, historically speaking. We have got, we experience so much and see so much and do so much. And so we just, we're numb to everything. We, do, we don't experience all. We don't, and if you can't have all, you can't have worship. When was the last time that you stood in something and you were just lost your breath? We don't experience all the way that we ought to. And so our hearts are hardened to worship. And so we're pulled to a million different physical things we can touch because we don't have that sense of transcendence. When we did our study through grief, we talked about that too. Is most people in our society don't experience grief until they absolutely have to. We don't experience sadness ordinarily. What do we do when people die? We hide them. Yeah, from the very beginning, you know, you talk to people who uh, are in their mid-20s that have never known anybody who's died. Can you imagine 70 years ago that being true? But we, we're so age-segregated and then so segregated from death. So what happens when somebody gets sick? Well, we put them off somewhere. Put them in a nursing home. You know, you go visit people in the nursing home and start asking them how often somebody comes to visit them. They just forget about it. And then they die, and we take them and we dress them up to look like they're still alive, and then we go bury them in a park. You know, we, we minimize as much as possible all of depth of emotion. Everything we feel is so superficial. Our, our outrage is superficial sound bites. Everything we experience is so brief. And really, you look at the presidential election, makes it an easy target. Uh, you talk to people about, why do you like this candidate? Well, I just feel like they're, what, what, what are their policies? And everything you know about them is a soundbite, 20-second soundbite, max. The, I, I used, I, probably a couple of months ago, I quoted this, and I don't remember it exactly now. But in the 1960s, the average presidential soundbite was about two and a half minutes. Now it's about five seconds. Moving on to the next thing. Our experience is so shallow in everything. And because we get so little in any one place, we get a little bit everywhere. And we treat our life like a buffet. You go to Ryan and say, well, I don't want to get too much of this because I'm going to get a little of this. And I get a little bit. And God says, why don't you load up on the thing that will satisfy you? instead of getting a little bit of nothing. But Rachel here hedges her bet. She says, well, I've got God, and I've got these gods. So we move on. We're going to have to jump down a little bit for the sake of time to verse 25. So they're on the run, and uh, they can leave because there's that two-day separation. Verse 25, then Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountain, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the Mount of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What hast thou done, that thou hast stolen away unawares to me and carried away my daughters as captives taken with the sword? Why have you stolen my daughters? Wherefore didst thou flee away secretly and steal away from me, and didst not tell me that I may have sent thee away with mirth and with songs and tabret and harp? And hast thou not suffered me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now thou hast done foolishly, 
in so doing. He says, you left and you didn't even give me a chance to say goodbye. Now, if there's anything we read about Laban, it's Laban didn't have any interest in saying goodbye. But if you uh, ever, you know, this is the thing that makes the, the Bible so powerful, is that in these accounts of what these people really did, you recognize people that you know. You think about somebody that's manipulative. What do they do? Well, they start drumming up emotions when they get caught. I think of one specific example where uh, confronting somebody about their drug abuse. And they started crying as sincerely as if I had smacked them in the face. I had the pill bottle in my hand. And they said, I can't believe that you think that I would do that to my kids. After everything they've been through, that I would. And sobbing there. Well, if I didn't know any better, I would say, oh, I'm so sorry. I've got the pill bottle in my hand. I can, don't, just, don't let me get distracted here. We fished this empty amphetamine bottle out of the toilet. I know. <laughs> recognize it. You're not fooling me. I recognize the name of the person you stole this from. I know the story here. But when people are manipulative, people are manipulative. <laughs> so Laban says, I can't believe after everything I've done for you that you wouldn't even let me tell my daughter goodbye. <laughs> Now, of course, Laban doesn't realize what he's doing. He's dealing with a master. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't, if anybody knows how to play on people's emotions, you remember when Jacob left uh, his father's house, it was under the pretense of wanting to find a wife that would be pleasing to his dad. He said, you don't want me to marry one of these people, do you? No, no, you go. And so Laban comes, and he, we're, we're going to see this a little further on, so let me not spoil it before we get there. So... He said in verse 29, it is in the power of my hand to do you hurt. But the God of your father, oh, there we go again. Laban doesn't say your God. Laban doesn't say my God. He says the God of your father. Spake unto me yesternight, saying, take thou heed that thou speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. And now, though thou wouldst needs be gone, because thou soared long after thy father's house, yet wherefore hast thou stolen my God? God told me not to say anything to you one way or the other. So, but if you had to leave, why did you have to take my gods with you? And now the reason that Laban hunted Jacob down comes out. He loads it with the emotional language, but then he finally gets down to the point. He says, why did you steal my idols? See where Laban's trust is also. And you know, we, we, Laban talked in chapter 30 about how God had blessed Jacob and how all these wonderful things had happened to Laban because Jacob was there. But at the same time, Laban's trust is still in his gods. You say, well, how dumb could he possibly be that he could still place his trust in idols after he's seen God multiply his flocks over and over again? You say, well, how many times has God done something for you and what short memories do we have? And so he comes and Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I said, peradventure thou wouldst take by force thy daughters from me. He says, I left in a hurry because I was afraid about what you might do. But with whomsoever thou findest thy gods, let him not live. Before our brethren, discern thou which is thine with me, and take it with thee. For Jacob knew not that Rachel had stolen them. 
Jacob says, whoever has got your gods, you just kill them. Because I don't have anything to do with it. Because he didn't know that it was Rachel. So Jacob here has put himself in a real bind. He's got his favorite wife, the father of Joseph, his favorite son, the mother of Joseph, his favorite son, has stolen these idols. And Jacob, it never even crosses Jacob's mind because Rachel can do no wrong. Let's see what happens. And Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the two maidservants' tents, but he found them not. Goes to Jacob's, he goes to Leah's, he goes to the two maidservants, their two servants that uh, had also, that they'd given to Jacob to marry. You notice the order there too. When, Le when Laban's trying to figure out who could have done this, he said, well, I bet it was that ugly-faced Leah. If it wasn't her, I bet it was one of those slave girls. Well, there's no way it was Rachel. And he goes over to Rachel. Now, Rachel had taken the images and put them in the camel's furniture, the saddle, and sat upon them. And Laban searched all the tents, but found them not. So Rachel puts the, uh, in the saddlebags, puts the idols in there, and then sits on the saddle. And she said to her father, let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise up before thee, for the custom of women is upon me. And he searched but found the images not. She says, I'm going through a womanly time right now, and I can't stand up for you, so I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to stay sitting here on the saddle. And Laban leaves. Now, there are a couple of things there, and I, I don't even know how to approach all this, but one thing is, can you imagine if Leah had been sitting on the saddlebag and had said that? Laban would have said, well, get up. You know? But Rachel has always been his favorite. Rachel's been the, the, the darling of everybody. And so she can get by with it because he doesn't know any better. It tells us one thing that being favored and well-loved and everything else does not necessarily prove your character. And really... Why did Rachel steal the idols? Well, she stole the idols because she didn't have any faith. But another reason she stole the idols is because she knew she could get away with it. Is as you read through this story, you don't get the impression that Rachel has ever been in trouble for anything in her entire life. She's always gotten what she wanted, how she wanted, when she wanted. She hedged her bets. Laban comes in, finds her, doesn't find them, so she won't get up off the saddle. And she said to her, uh, and Jacob was wroth, and he gets after them and everything else. Let's jump down to, uh, let's, let's go all the way down to verse 45. So they come and they make an agreement that there's going to be a stone pillar that they won't cross. Verse 45 says, and Jacob took a stone and set it up for a pillar. And Jacob said unto his brethren, Gather stones, and they took stones, and made a heap, and they did eat there upon the heap. And Laban called it Jergashahutha, something. But Jacob called it Galid, which Jacob also couldn't pronounce good. And Laban said, 
this heat is a witness between me and thee this day. Therefore was the name of it called Galeed. And Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent one for another. If thou shalt afflict my daughters, or if thou shalt take my other wives beside my daughters, no man is with us. See, God is witness betwixt me and thee. Builds the stone, he says, God's a witness between us when we're apart. You know, sometimes uh, wives buy their husbands things that have that verse on it, uh, the, just the part in, just the part there where God will be a witness between us while we're apart. And the husband thinks, oh, that's so sweet. What the wife is really saying is, if you run around on me, God's there watching you. He's gonna hunt you. <laughs> so Jacob and Laban here are making this covenant that the two of them, God's going to keep track of them. God's going to sort it all out. And they, they, the, I'm not going to do you any harm is the oath they both made. This was going to be the border of their two territories. Verse 53, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge betwixt us. And Jacob swear by the fear of his father Isaac. Again, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, the fear of his father Isaac. We leave here, Jacob has become a wealthy, successful, powerful man. God has spared him over and over again, and yet he doesn't know God. You know, we, we know, you've heard of Jacob before, and the only reason you've heard of Jacob is because he's the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. You know he comes around. But what if he hadn't? What if he had died here? How sorry would it have been for somebody who hedged their bets and was always just sort of halfway with God, after everything God had done for him, to die and be separated from God. You know, God has no grandchildren. It didn't matter that he was the God of his fathers. How terrible would it be to waste all the opportunities that he had received? How terrible would it be for Jacob to have died apart from Jesus with everything he had had? But he could have. If he had died here, all the money he had wouldn't have made a difference. All the blessings he'd received wouldn't have made a difference. How faithful his father was and his grandfather was wouldn't have made a difference. All that matters is how he stood with God. The question is, how many of you here this morning are hedging your bets? You've got God, but you've got the idols in your saddlebag. You're close to God. You've got family members, but you haven't exactly jumped on the bandwagon yourself. How many of you here, if you stood before God tonight and God said, what's your answer for your sin? have to say, well, you know, I did the best I could. Have you met my mom? <laughs> and how many of you could say, I plead the blood. I have fully trusted in Jesus. The only answer that I have is that Jesus died for me, and I've thrown my weight on him completely. That's the only answer that you can have that will hold any weight. Anything else is just so much smoke and mirrors. But if you say, I believe that Jesus died for me, I turn from my sin and turn to him, and God saves you right then. But don't leave here having had all the opportunities and all the blessings and all the understanding and because you hedged your bets because you were divided in your heart be separated from God. As we stand and our musicians come forward, we're going to have a hymn of invitation to give you a chance to get right this morning.